Good morning. We have two readings this morning. The first one is from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 13. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, And from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mysteries of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophet. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, 
members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Thank you, Kathy, and hello, everybody. It's good to be with you. Um, thank you to that person who said hello, Shane. Hello to you, too, wherever you are. Hi, everybody else. Hey, you've heard the saying that a change is as good as a holiday. And probably you know, as I do, that that's not really true. The guy who wrote that either only ever experienced great change or mediocre holidays. Because I'll take a holiday over change any day, even though I like change. Despite the fact that I like change, and some of you hear change and get excited. Some of you hear change and might get nervous. Some of you hear change and say, explain more. Um, we do change at different rates, but um, change can be tough. Here's one of the spaces for me where change is hard. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You know when you're at the supermarket, you're at Woolies, and you're in your line, and it's long, and you look at the other line, and you think, I'm sure that line's going faster than my line. Now you are at this change crisis moment where you think, should I switch lines? And depending on how you are, there might be a little part of you that goes, but if I choose that line, that means I got it wrong when I chose this line. And then there's the worst thing that can possibly happen, right? What if you do change? And now Murphy's Law, all of a sudden that line starts going faster. And now you're like, oh, what have I done? And you condemn yourself. Uh, Condemnation is one of the reasons that change is hard. It's why I'll never go skydiving. Because, (laughs) see, in the event that I went skydiving... And in the small possibility that something went wrong, there's only one thing that is greater than the impact of me hitting the ground at terminal velocity, and that is the serious berating I would give myself on the way down. Oh, we had to be a thrill seeker. Oh, it wasn't good enough to stay home and watch television or even ride a bike. No, we had to go and jump out of a perfectly good plane that we paid good money to be in and now we're hurtling towards our death. Nice going, Dirksy. I would be merciless. A change of hobby would be hard. Yeah, pride can get in the way. Um, I've driven more than a few redundant kilometres in my life. Because I've been heading this way and the inkling comes to me, I think this is wrong. No, 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 I keep believing, I'll smell my way there. 
15 kilometers later, reality hits. And I have to turn around, and now there are 30 kilometers. You hear, I'm still condemning. If there's a counselor in the room, can we talk later? The pride got the better of me because I just didn't want to turn around. Change can be hard. These are probably frivolous things, but saying sorry can be tough. Uh, when you say sorry, you say, hey, the behavior that I exhibited, the things I said weren't right. Uh, I want to take them back. I want to acknowledge them as not correct. It's scary because you've got your own internal voices, but what's the person in front of you going to do? Are they going to condemn you when you say, yeah, I got it wrong? Are they going to pile on? It's scared to, to change, to move into these spaces. It's why this morning, as we reflect upon Ephesians chapter 3, the message I want to bring you is that grace is the space for change. It's a message that we've already received a lesson in this morning because, hey, when you are born on the footpath, unless someone intercedes with some kind of gracious, generous love and opportunity that people born on footpaths don't have, the trajectory is kind of set, right? But grace is a wonderful space for change. And so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is the change space. This is my first point, the change space. And uh, we can learn a lot about the change space by following Paul as he writes in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read it together. Uh, It'll be on the screen. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, in that sentence alone is a lot. Paul says, for this reason. The reason is that God is a gracious God. He's created a space for change. We have learned already in this letter that in his grace, God has brought blessing from heaven to earth in the Messiah. But the big theme we've talked about, you and us and our, is that God has brought a people who were separate together as one people. You can, you can see it here. For he himself is our peace, that is our wholeness, who has made from the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So you got to trace back Jew-nation relations. This does include how does Israel relate with the Canaanites, all the holy wars that we don't love reading about. How does the Jewish people relate with the Babylonians? (laughs) All of those... You can't give the food of the children to the dogs. These are separate people. These are people who God gave regulations about. They're not to eat. They're separate. There's a dividing barrier and indeed there's hostility. But God, who is uh, abounding in love, great in love, and rich in mercy, included the Gentile, the non-Jew, with his chosen people and made one. He demonstrated grace that went beyond the boundary and the dividing hostility. And Paul says, you know, it's this kind of grace of God, particularly in how he treated these two people groups, that has also changed me, and now I'm the prisoner of Christ. This opening verse, verse 1, teaches us that God's grace creates the space where hostility has moved to harmony and where the persecutor of Christ has become the joyful prisoner of Christ. Grace was the space for change. Imagine that man, Paul, how his life has turned around. Nations have changed and become one. And this man, who was once persecutor, 
is now joyful prisoner of Christ and proclaimer of Christ. Let me try and contextualize. Um, Beginning of this year, we received a gift from God in the Kinstead family. And we were told there's this guy, Robin Kinstead will be our new senior minister. And I publicly give thanks to God for that. I love the guy. And we all went, yeah. All right, so who's Robin? Well, he's, a, he's an Anglican minister. He's going to be leading us. Oh, what's his backstory? Oh, I used to work for Al-Qaeda. So what? Would you feel a little different if we said our new minister used to work for Al-Qaeda? Perhaps. Maybe certainly. This is the kind of situation we've got here. Paul, persecutor, becomes prisoner and proclaimer. How does that happen? Grace. How does this change occur for Paul? Grace. How do people who have still got a raised eyebrow, who maybe lost relatives under persecutions from Paul, receive him into fellowship? Certainly not by his CV or what he brings to the table. But grace expressed in fellowship and hospitality. Grace is the space for change. Now you might say there's other ways you can change stuff. Yes, there are other ways you can change stuff. There are ways you can change outcomes. You can put in a rule or a law. You can shame people into the right behavior. You can uh, use force to make something go the way you want it to go. So yes, you can change outcomes in different ways, but if people are to change, if hearts are to change, I'm telling you, grace is the space to change. Grace is the space for change. I mean, look at God. God's law was perfect. Can I get an amen? Okay, your amen is important because sometimes as we read God's law, we go, really, what? No, God's law is perfect and always good. It's a perfect and good law. And yet Paul in his letter to the Romans, says, despite God's law being good and perfect and holy, was powerless to bring about the change required in humanity. Israel, who had the law, well, we've read in Ephesians, well, they, like the rest, followed their sinful sinful desires. And law couldn't bring life where there was death. So law couldn't do it, even when it was God's law, but somehow we scratch our heads and go, but if we come up with the right rules, we can change everything. The Jewish people not only had law, they would often use shame as well. And this is becoming quite in vogue again in this era of social media. I've read accounts of, you know, the story of the woman caught in adultery. In that sort of scenario, a woman caught in adultery was not just accused of doing wrong, she would be shamed, she would be stripped to the waist before her accusers, that she might feel the weight of the shame. And those associated with her might feel the weight of the shame. I'll need that. But that doesn't change people. Rome used force. And they're not even an empire anymore. These things can change outcomes, but they can't change people. Grace is the space for change, and it's a consistent theme throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Let's look at at some of those spaces. Chapter 1, as you'll see, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose 
And we've covered how that was God's gracious move to choose a people who were dead and unable to call triple zero, but God who is rich in love, he chose. And why did he choose? In his grace, he chose that their status might change, that they might go from common to being holy, that they might be going from being hypocritical and wandering to being blameless and consistent before the Lord. Grace led to a change of status and a change of behavior. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 also says, For we are God's handiwork. Did we do it ourselves? No, this is grace. This is God who did it. It's his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He chose us, set the course, said let's go. Grace is the space for change. This is the consistent language throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a consistent theme that grace changes status, changes behavior, brings life where there was only death. But here's the trouble with trouble. The trouble with trouble, as we learned last week, is there are these things called transgressions and sins. Or, as I've heard played back to me a few times now, whoopsies and poopsies. Those mistakes we make on accident, in ignorance, now, with a whoopsie, a transgression, sometimes grace can be a little bit easier to apply in that space. But when a poopsie comes along, and I know I knew better, and maybe I knew I was malicious, I might treat myself differently. Grace is maybe a little harder to apply. You know when it's really hard to apply? When it's your poopsie. When it's, I know you knew better. I know you acted maliciously, or at least I believe I know. Then grace can get tricky. But here's how grace is a space to change. What we'll often do in the space of a whoopsie and a poopsie, particularly a poopsie, is we catastrophize. We talk in monstrous terms of how bad this thing is. I can't believe they do that. I think it's a defense mechanism. I think when I say, you know, people who run red lights are the scourge of the earth. They are terrible people, all these sorts of things. I'm trying to declare to all of you, you will never find me in that horrible space. No, no, no. And sometimes when I tell you just how bad you've done and I catastrophize and monsterize, I'm trying to maybe squeeze out of you some kind of penance or some kind of make it right with me. The sad thing about catastrophe and monsterizing is it, it doesn't tend to lead to change it tends to go to hiding just like our first father Adam who when he was found naked and exposed before the Lord he hid for he didn't know the grace of God in the way that you do if you're in Christ Jesus and so he hid in his catastrophe here's how grace changes things grace can change the self-talk I suspect I'm not Robinson Crusoe when I say to you you know when you mess up and you oh I'm such an idiot I've seen some of the most godly people I know do that, and I do it too. I'm such an idiot. But grace says, don't do that. Grace says, next time you mess up, go, oh, better start again. Oh, second chance with experience this time. What if our language, our self-talk changed from the oppressive and condemnation of, oh, I'm such an idiot, which is sub-biblical, to a gracious, oh, second chance. Let's have another go at this with experience. 
Uh, Grace's influence, I haven't always got this right in practice, but this is something I've taught my children uh, since we could talk to each other. We don't want our kids to lie, right? Rather than um, use the rule of don't lie, I've, I've said to my children since they were little, if you tell me the whole story, I can give you my best help. I'm trying to apply grace as a space for change. Tell me the whole story and I'll give you my best help. Because I said, well, hey, do you reckon dad knows some stuff? Yeah, dad, you go all right, you know some things. Do you reckon dad would be all right to have as a teammate? Yes, dad, you would be good on team. All right, well, if I'm your teammate, I'm going to need to know all the stuff. So if you tell me everything, even the stuff that's yucky and the stuff that, let's be honest, might make dad's face change a little bit because I'm still working on mercy, I'll give you my best help. Don't lie as a rule. And now my kids have to work out, well, if I lie and I get away with it, everything goes away. Tell me the whole story and I'll give you my best help. Grace is a space for change. You see, we have this, I, I think we have this wiring that suspects that if I'm wrong, I have to be rejected. Wrong goes with rejected. But the thing I want us to understand this morning as we think about grace as a space for change is that you can be wrong and received. Where grace abounds, wrong doesn't lead to rejected. Wrong can go with received. And in the bubble of received are wonderful things like rehabilitation, restitution, making good at the second chance, possible reconciliation, not rejection, I forgive you. But instead, received so we might be repentant and redeemed. I want to talk to you about some prickly areas where I think uh, we need to refine grace. In the world of sexual immorality, we've wrestled with some stuff over the years where, well, there's been a change of standard. Uh, there was a phrase that I knew as a child, and even through the 90s as I listened to my favourite band, Bon Jovi, they had a song called Living in Sin. I don't hear that phrase anymore, and I'm kind of glad. I'm glad because the phrase seems to come with a spirit of condemnation about it. And grace is a space for change. What concerns me, though, is as we move to some different language of partners and, and, and things like that, we may miss a truth and a standard of God. That any sexual activity that does not occur as an act of service within a heterosexual marriage is always, every time, without a shadow of a doubt, wrong and sinful. But we want to be welcoming. How can we do that? What if we say what's wrong is right? Then we can get along, because wrong means rejected. But here's where grace is a space for change. Grace says you can be wrong and received. Wrong and received. And so if you're here and there is an issue of sexual immorality with you, and you know that under God that's not right, welcome. It's good to have you. Hi, I'm Shane. I got an issue with pride. And the person sitting next to you, they're wrong too. So welcome in your issue, welcome in your issue, and I'm feeling received in my issue too. We're all here graciously. 
Now, I feel like this issue of sexual immorality is, this standard is kind of, how can I put it? It's something that's been moving for some time. I hope that under God we can uh, recover lost ground. The issue that's probably right ahead of us continues to flow out of a change in standard rather than an abundance of grace in the realm of sexual immorality. And this is, of course, around the conversation around same-sex activity. Now, if I understand correctly, and maybe I don't, often advocates for same-sex relationships and activity will say that a, safe, a place is only safe if it's affirming. Because if you say I'm wrong or doing something wrong, then, well, I have to be rejected. We've got to have a sympathy for that. Because that's kind of how we're naturally wired and that's how we've acted sometimes. With, with, with problems of sexual immorality amongst heterosexuals, sometimes, like, oh, they're living in sin and they're shunned. No, be received, be repentant and be redeemed. So it makes sense to me that if I was in a same-sex relationship, I too might think it's not safe unless you affirm me because if you don't affirm me and you say what I'm doing is wrong, then I won't be received. Here's what I want to say about that. Um, If you think being affirmed is a way to make it safe, you're holding on to a very short hope. Here's what I mean. So what if, what if we said, actually, you know what? We do affirm same-sex relationships and we do affirm same-sex activity. Great, so now I'm received because I'm not wrong anymore. Until you do something that is wrong. (coughs) And now I'm back to the same old problem. So now we have to change another rule. What about if we understood that grace is a space for change and rather than change standards, we said you can be wrong and received. And so if you are here and you're in a same-sex relationship and practicing that same-sex relationship, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. This is a place for you. I'm Shane. And geez, I'm selfish and I'm a greedy guy and I'm wrong and I'm so glad that I'm received by this church. They even let me do this. Grace is a space for change. Hey, I've got to push into one more spot. One more spot. Some years ago, uh, our Sydney Anglican Diocese had a great incentive. We wanted to see 10% of the diocese reach for Jesus. Why 10%, some people ask. Well, the argument was because 10% is critical mass. When you get 10%, you've got a movement. You've got, you're, visual, you're, you're visible in the community, and that's great, and then it, it goes. We didn't get to 10%. God willing, we will someday. But you know what is over 10%? The instances of domestic abuse. It's at critical mass. Brothers and sisters, today as I speak in this room, I know that I will be speaking to people who are touched by domestic abuse. I'm one of them. Um, This is a real one for us. So how does grace apply? Well, sometimes when we talk about domestic abuse, it's my concern and my burden to share with you that there's a danger of catastrophe. Now, please don't hear me wrong. This is not an affirmation of this is not a serious issue. This is a serious issue, and it's wrong. But when we comfort ourselves and allow our reactions to get the better of us and use monstrous language and catastrophic language, 
We don't help anybody. What is the desire for a victim of domestic abuse or a coercive controlling behaviour? That victim will become survivor, not remain in the space of victim. Now, something, something hard and something wrong has happened when this takes place. We don't want to use language that makes things to be overcome even worse or harder. And I want to say to you, if you are a victim or a survivor of domestic abuse, let grace abound. You don't need to be put together to be in God's family. You don't need to overcome and then just come as you are. This is a place that can receive you. And if it's not a place that, then, that can receive you, then it's not you that's wrong. It might be us that's wrong. Let grace abound. One of the other spaces where I think we've got to be really careful here is where there's a victim or a survivor, there's a perpetrator. My concern is when we use monstrous language and condemnation language rather than just, this is wrong. I fear for perpetrators, and some will sit in this room today, some may be with us now, This is not a shame speech, this is a grace speech. Monstrous and catastrophic language causes hiding and that doesn't help anybody. That causes me to think, well, I would never own up to that. If you're here as a victim, survivor or perpetrator, welcome. This is a gracious space. This is a safe place. This is a place where we can all own our wrongness. If anything, this is a place to own wrongness. Welcome, welcome. There is wrongness and being received and an opportunity for rehabilitation. Heavy, right? Heavy. This is the challenge of grace. Grace is costly. Grace is something that uh, pushes out of the heart of the lover. It is not dragged out of the heart by any kind of attraction or capacity by the one who is loved. It pushes out because of the character of the lover. So we ask ourselves now, surely, if grace is the space for change, then where is the space for grace? And this is my second point, my second and final point. Where is the space for grace? Here's what Paul says in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. What Paul's saying here is, let me tell you how it works. Let me tell you about the space for grace. Let me tell you where I found grace grace the space for grace he continues in verses four to six in reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of christ which was made known to people in other generations as it which was not made known to people in other generations as it is as it has now been revealed by the spirit to god's holy apostles and prophets this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I came to understand grace, the mystery of how can you bring 
Jew and Gentile together, how can you overcome the hostile barrier that exists between these two people? How can sinner be called saint? How can all this happen? This is a mystery revealed when Christ was made known to Paul. Paul says, when I met Jesus, when he was revealed to me, the things that Isaiah that we read about, prophesied about and promised, ah, that's how it makes sense because Jesus is the space for grace. How do children who are not children of Abraham become children of Abraham? Well, when a new Adam, Jesus, comes along and a new humanity is formed and now God in his grace brings all things together. Paul is declaring that he understood Jesus to be the space for grace. And he goes on in verse 7 to talk about how it changed him. I became a servant of this gospel, this news. I became one who is now compelled to share about the space for grace. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul says, man, I became a servant to make known to all people Jesus. Because when people meet Jesus, they find grace. And he continues on, and this is where it hits for us. Verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're thinking chapter 10 sounds like a good thing for someone to write a PhD about, you're probably right. I'm not going to write a PhD, but I'm going to give you some broad brush strokes that I think will help. Who is the church? The church is anybody gathered in the name of Jesus. When you gather in the name of Jesus and under his lordship, you're church. So, hey, you're church. Your life group is church. Your prayer triplet is church. What's happening in the heavenly realm as the multitudes gather around the throne of glory is church. The word is ecclesia. It just means gathering. When you gather in the name of Christ and under his lordship, you are church. It's really, really simple. You don't even need a freakishly high ceiling to do it. You just need people who confess Christ gathered together and your church. So God's intent is that the gathering, the church will do something. What will they do? They'll make known the manifold wisdom of God. Who will they make the manifold wisdom of God known to? Well, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Who are they? Now, people say different things. Let me tell you what I think. Uh, Some have said these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are similar to the ones in chapter 6, the demonic forces and things like that. And I I think that's probably true. But I think there's something even more exciting going on here. Because do you remember that Paul says, what was made known to him? The manifold, the mystery, the manifold wisdom of God, right? And how does Paul describe himself? As a really great guy? No, as the least, right? He says, it was made known to me the least of all people. And now he's saying God's plan 
is not just that it would be known by the least, but that his manifold wisdom, that is, that Christ is the grace space, would be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. Now, in my mind as I read that, I have this image that I derive from Hebrews chapter 11 of this great cloud of witness. This gathering in the heavenly realm of people like King David, people like Elijah, people like Moses, people like Solomon, people like the the King Josiah. These authorities, these really special people now in the heavenly realm, they need to know They need to celebrate and they declare as part of the church. I have in mind the archangel Michael and the archangel Gabriel who command God's armies, these authorities and rulers in the heavenly realms. They need to know. I have in mind the journey. And you remember our little picture of uh, the earth and the heavenly realm and the air that's in the middle, that on the way to these great lofty places, you might pass some demons and the devil and all these people along the way, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He needs to know too. What's the message of verse 10? It's that God's intent, his desire, as is that through his church, from the least to the most, from the saintly to the demonic, from the east to the West, from the Jew to the Gentile, from the big to the small, from the young to the old, from the black to the white, from the everything, all need to know about Jesus. Not new. Preach the gospel in all spaces. All need to know. This is what Paul was saying in chapter 1, verse 10, when he talked about all things being brought together in heaven and earth under Christ. God's desire was that Christ would be made known in all places so that grace might be made known in all places. Brothers and sisters, I came this morning to tell you that Christ is the space for grace and grace is the space for change. And so I send you out with this. If you want the world to change and a world that is dead in sin and transgression needs to change, if you want the world to change, proceed with grace. And if you want to proceed with grace, speak about Jesus. Let him spill out of you. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a delight to call you gracious Heavenly Father. According to your grace, you have become our Father. We've been adopted as your children. According to your grace, you gave your Son. According to your grace, your Holy Spirit was sent upon your people that we might be united with your Son being rescued from sin and death and brought into eternal life. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit, as you have promised, you might continue to conform us to the likeness of Jesus, the one who brought grace. Father God, we pray now against our natural intuition to apply a law, to shame somebody, to shame ourselves, to condemn Instead, Lord, may your spirit once again remind us of what we have been taught, that Jesus Christ is the space for grace and grace is the space for change. And so, Father, we pray 
that in the grace of him all might be received, all might follow as disciples to be led into repentance and redemption. Oh, Father God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are a father who teaches your children, protects your children, guards your children, and that you, by grace, have adopted us as your children. Father, we're humbled by your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.